and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm looking at Pluto. I see you, Pluto. I'm your host, Robert Eversman, celebrating the release of Deep Overstock Issue 17, Beekeeping. We are releasing six episodes with six authors each because you can't spell B without six E's. B. Tonight we will hear work by Nicholas Yandel, Estee Arts Grenshaw, Robert Dweisberg, Brooke Hobson, Matson, Lily Walsh, and Julie Jones. First tonight we have A Restless Wonder by Nicholas Yandel. Yandel is a composer who sometimes creates with words instead of sound, and in these cases he usually ends up with fiction and occasionally poetry. Nick works as a bookseller at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, where he enjoys being being surrounded by a wealth of knowledge as well as working and interacting with creatively stimulating people. He has a website where he displays his creations. It is nicholasyandel.com. Now here's Of Restless Wonder by Nicholas Yandel. Do you ever feel restless? Asked the worker of a drone. Long to live beyond the structures, the hexagons of honeycombs? Ever feel we're something more than antenna twitches and wing flicks and buzzing bands of yellow in vast washes of green under distant blankets of blue? Away from the queen, Apart from the hive, beyond existing to simply survive, give in to the urge, disengage our tracks, stray far from the path, and head for the horizon? This wisp of a quandary, tossed out casually, by some quiet voices going unnoticed, save for one small set of ears. A passing goat who feels without fully comprehending that they've never been alone in their quest to know what's beyond the fences. The long golden sheets spanning squinted eye reach, the high mounds brushing against the clouds, the distant color explosions and transitional motion of a glowing globe ascending the highest trees, illuminating borders and the realms of their keepers whose modest life is sketched out, growing seeds, tending an apiary, and watching the goats at play, while dreaming of other lands and faraway adventures of a world unknown, the deep seas and winding rivers, towering mountaintops and desert expanses, by automobiles and railroad cars, airplanes and ocean liners, and that of the slick-suited travelers boarding massive shiny rockets and blasting off skyward. Those starry-eyed gravity defiers, thrusting metal through the atmosphere, longing to merge with specks of light, satiating that need to go past the bounds of an earthly home, thriving in the warmth of speculation. Like all the great explorers, even those within the mind, wandering the limits, embracing imagination, contemplating consciousness, and in what state or what place dwells life and reality. Spiraling questions, 
musings of possibilities, spun with theories of frequencies and desire for the ability to commune with nature, with all the plants and animals, even insects, like that little bee, to fathom the secrets they keep in the spans of their being and what they too ponder when casting out their wonder. We now have two poems by Estée Arts Crenshaw. Crenshaw is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric Studies at the University of Utah. She received her MFA in Creative Writing from Brigham Young University. Estée's academic work in comparative rhetoric focuses on pre-modern Japanese poetry and aesthetic tradition. Now here's Mega Day by Estée Arts Crenshaw. Mega Day by Estée Arts Crenshaw. As it chews through the nursery loaves, hatching brood tunnels through an immaculate darkness immured with careful clippings. Its birth into the light bristles with a certainty unknown to us who wake into an opacity so densely vacuous that we subsist on sifted memories. Now here's Sorrow by Estée Arts Crenshaw. Sorrow by Estée Arts Crenshaw. A firstborn sorrow buffers its descendants in the same way early bees in a hive smear propolis into every crack, encasing the queen in darkness. We have now an elegant unfolding written by Robert Dweisberg. Dweisberg is a composer and beekeeper in Seattle. He has retired from a working life in software, artificial intelligence in particular, so he came to beekeeping, not for the honey, but to bee in the presence of these astounding distributed intelligences. But what to do with all the honey? He has therefore also taken up brewing and produces a fine cider with local apples, hops, and honey. Now here's an elegant unfolding written by Robert Weissman. Sitting with bees, irrepressible energy hums like the sun poured into spring's burgeoning blossoming. Honeyed sweetness is gathered in quickness, but ah, it's been cold for them now. Many have drowned in a late April hail, and each day they deposit their dead on the doorstep. I'm stunned by their matter-of-factness expressing that everyday change in their numbers must happen, for how could renewal occur without shedding what's been? How then could this hive live through winter to spring were she not to let die almost all of her daughters, retaining a core in a cluster that warms itself torpidly burning the honey of summer? Let new brood in spring find more means to survive by letting the old and their ways fall aside. And how can I not be but grateful that things work this way? For if not, I'd not be here. No thinking of thoughts, no hand to write words, had not eons of forebears passed to make way for the fresh life that may find its way to continue discovering new ways to be. No heart then to break, as I see my own place in this dying, so that life may continue to bloom. 
when I think of departing from all of this sweetness, the pain of this passing particular loss of elders and friends now gone as reminders that I'll be up soon as swift time sweeps us on. Now we have two poems by Brooke Hopstick Matson. Hopstick Matson is an American poet living in Canada with her spouse and ginger cat, David Byrne. When she is not writing, she is collecting honey and salmon for her day job. What day job requires salmon and Brooke has work published in the Borderline and forthcoming in First Literary Review East. First, here's Consider the Bees by Brooke Hopstick-Matson. Consider the Bees I suppose there must be a god to do with this blue-green earth when I am reluctant enough to consider the bees. When I am reluctant enough to consider the selfless bees, kept and unkept, I think of something more than us. Something more than you and I, weaving mystery into secret, like they do turning flowers to wine. Preserving solstice blooms into syrupy droves, offered unguarded, almost to thank lusting strangers for their urges. In my lonely life, in this lonely world, I often forget to consider the bees. Now, here's This Is Just to Say to the Bees by Brooke Hopstick Matson. This is just to say to the bees. I have gathered the honey that was in your hives, and which you are all surely keeping for winter. Forgive me. It was so pleasing, so sweet, and so pure. Come next year, I will certainly come searching for more. Now, we have Return to Honey Castle by Lily Walsh and Josh. Lily Walsh lives in the south of Portland, Oregon, where she has just completed her first year of high school. She is the author of Zombie Mountain, The Worry Wart, and Stories, as well as the forthcoming Penguin Party, all published by Pluto House. Josh is Lily's uncle. Now, here's Return to Honey Castle by Lily Walsh and Josh. Return to Honey Castle. Estranged from my family, I was surprised at the call. Master Anders, said the voice. There was a distant buzzing, what might have been electrical interference, or perhaps... Yes, yes, hello, I said. Yes, this is Anders, hello. The voice on the line began a coughing fit. He had covered the receiver with his hand. By the sound, like dislodging a peppermint candy from the bottom of his throat, I knew it was the voice of my childhood butler. <coughs> there, he recovered. There is a train ticket under your door. He began coughing again. <coughs> An envelope was slid under my door. Ulrich, I said, what's happened? What's going on? <coughs> there. <clears throat> there is a problem in your family, he said. 
Has there been a death? I said. Get on the train, he said. Your driver is waiting. I looked out my window. The black car outside Halpin's Deli started and the window rolled down. A man in a black bowler hat leaned out and tapped on his watch. I got into the car, then onto the train. Into the final car, I broke into a sweat. I spoke to my father fifteen years ago, my mother seventeen. I cannot remember my sister's or my brother's voice, and I am certain I have several aunts and uncles, but even my utmost concentration, aided by the rhythmic clanking of the train, I could remember nary a face nor name. The car stopped. A man as tall as a doorway opened my door. He wore a top hat and bowed to me, indicating Honey Castle, a gothic revival villa in the style of Strawberry Hill, only charcoal black, crooked, and obscured by dead trees. It is good that you have come, Master Anders, said Ulrich. It is an unprecedented time, Master Anders. We bypassed the front door and took the stone path through the garden. How our mother and father, I said, Dead, sir, said Ulrich. He vigorously massaged his throat. <clears throat> oh, I said. Ulrich was older than either of my parents. He opened the back gate, and we came to the vista overlooking our Honey Castle's hundred-acre property. It was poppies as far as the eye could see. Bees, like starlings, took the flowers in swaths. Their hum was like putting your head in a thresher. There is no one to tend the bees, said Ulrich. Tomas, I said, my brother. Hospitalized, said Ulrich. Katharina, Ulrich shook his head. Uncle Jonas, I said, their names coming back to me. Died tragically. I stared in the lines of my hands. Surely there must be others. You are the sole heir left living, conscious or of sound mind. Ulrich gestured at the infinity of poppies and the shadows of bees hanging about them. I have had as little to do with bees as possible for twenty years. I moved to Newark to avoid all contact with flowering trees, beekeepers, or bees. I do not go near honey. Ulrich took me to my room with an intricate honeycomb ceiling and carved detailing to the furniture so every drawer handle is a polished echinacea or wildflower. I closed the blinds of my window, a view of the poppies. I loosened my tie and untied my shoes. Ulrich waited patiently by the door. Might I suggest, sir, he said. He opened the closet and searched through a number of dark redwood chests my father brought home from India. He removed a tall white garment of thick fabric and a wide-brimmed hat with thick veil. A beekeeper's suit. Your suit, sir, said Ulrich. I stood among the poppies. I moved slowly. A bee could smell fear. Every step I squeezed my bee smoker, Ulrich behind me squeezing his. Your lead, sir, he said. We approached one of the hives which lined the poppy fields. Honey castle like a storm cloud loomed behind us. I slid a honeycomb from the hive and showed it to Ulrich. Good show, sir, he said. He took it and set it on our small white wheelbarrow and gave me a fresh drip tray to replace it. I swiped at the bees gathering about my veil. 
and slid out a second honeycomb, handing it to Ulrich. Yes, look at that. Really nice, sir. Beautiful. We went about it that way, removing full honeycombs and replacing them with new trays until Ulrich hefted the wheelbarrow, full now of honeycombs, up to the castle. I'll just take these back, he said. We'll take next from that hive there. That hive, I said. Yes, he said. Is that a problem? It was so full of honey it leaked from its seams. The air about the hive wavered like gasoline vapor. The bees looked almost silver. And by the way they flew, well, it seemed they flew upside down. Will that be a problem? Ulrich said again, lowering the wheelbarrow. I looked at the other hives. I blinked my eyes. I wanted to rub them, reset them. I looked again at the strange bees and made eye contact with one. No, I said. No, it should be no problem. I felt cold, shaken, as if woken up in a snowstorm. Wonderful. Wonderful, said Ulrich. He picked up his wheelbarrow and pushed it to the castle. I approached the strange bees, which only grew stranger. I noticed now they flew not only anatomically as a strange species of bees, but seemingly together in a trance, in a consistent ring around their hive, like a rotating halo. Even their hum was strange. Fatigued, perhaps, from the train ride, I mistook it for a drone of words. Come, I thought I heard. I came closer, closer to the hive. No, it was fatigue from the train and two car rides. No, it was my fatigue from the train and two car rides. I took a break. I waited for Ulrich. I paced through the poppies and examined other hives. Though I had avoided this place for twenty years, it wasn't so bad. I will admit bees are frightening, but in a bee suit, it's not so bad. And squeezing the bee smoke, I felt calmer still. Commanders, I turned to the strange bees. They continued in their strange halo. Anders, they said. I approached them. I put my hands on their hive. Hello, Anders, they said. I lifted a honeycomb. It's okay, they said, now more clearly than ever. You can take off your helmet. I set the honeycomb in the grass against the hive, then removed and set my helmet in the grass beside it. Yes, Anders, that's the ticket. I lifted my arms and I came to sit on them. Do you know what we do? They said. You make honey, I said. They climbed higher on my arms, which had begun to grow heavy. What intelligence, Anders, yes, they said, yes, that is precisely what we do. Now try some. The inside of their hive was so beautifully golden. I took off my gloves. Can I? I said, my finger ready above their hive. Please, Anders, do, they said. Their buzz grew with my excitement. We were all watching my finger. I scooped up so much honey it streamed down my hand. Yes, Anders, go, they said in almost a whisper. I brought it to my mouth. 
My tongue recoiled from shock. It was like nothing I ever tasted. My whole body swelled with sweetness. Immediately I was filled with energy. I could lift the wheelbarrow over my head. I could run through a mile of poppies. We are nightmare bees, said the bees. They were now close to my ears, as if what they said was secret. Nightmare bees, I said. Yes, Anders, we terrify your kind to death. We distribute fear through honey. I felt a weight grow inside my chest. Honey Castle grew taller than ever, an entire mountain with all its trees made black, the manor's terrible facade staring at me like a crooked face. Anders, they said. Yes, I said. Each family member before you, your brother, your mother, your sister, your father, has tried to stop us and kill us, so they have each met their own terrible end. Do you want to be put into a coma, Anders? No, I do not, I said. Do you want to be killed? I felt as if young children crawled quickly through the grass to tear at my legs. Of course not, I said. The black trees swayed, my lungs compressed. The bees knew everything about me. Will there be a problem? Ulrich said. He had appeared with a fresh wheelbarrow. No, Ulrich, I said. I foresee no problem. Lightning flashed, but there was no rain. Closing tonight, we have... Melissa, Queen of the Bees, by Julie Jones. Julie Jones earned her MFA from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Her stories have appeared in the Chicago Quarterly Review, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg Review, Cincinnati Review Micro, and Burning Word Literary Journal, among others. Her work has been nominated for the B.A.S. Microfiction 2020, I won't do that twice, and Best of Net 2020, I'll do it now. B, she writes early mornings, B for attending to her duties as a federal court law librarian. You can find her at juliemjones.com. Now here's Melissa, Queen of the Bees, by Julie Jones. Melissa, Queen of Bees, by Julie Jones. My sister Melissa decided to take up beekeeping in May 2020, saying it was as good a pandemic hobby as any, but it wasn't. Have you forgotten that you're allergic to bees, I asked over dinner at her and her wife's house. We were a bubble of three since Diane's parents were dead and mine and Melissa's lived in another state. If you want honey, just buy at the farmer's market like all the other nuts who think it will cure their allergies. But Melissa had always had a perverse desire to do things the hardest way possible. Let's tear up the back lawn, she said. Make it a lavender field. The honey will taste so sweet. That lawn, said Diane, sounding disgruntled, glaring out the patio doors toward their expansive yard. Your lawn is nearly an acre, I said, thinking it was a point against the plan. Exactly, said Melissa, turning to Diane with a smile. No more mowing. No more wasted time. During the warm months, Diane spent every Saturday mowing and every Sunday complaining about mowing, not to mention the dandelion control. I'll admit your plan scares me, Diane said to Melissa, but I want you to be happy. Happy, I said. Do you want her to be dead? You can't do this to me. 
Melissa had nearly died after her last sting 40 years ago at the age of 13. I was 10, her face stretched out like a red party balloon, her throat swelled shut tight as a knot. Melissa now looked at me with an expression of mingled compassion and determination. I've been afraid of bees my whole life, she said. I don't want to live in fear anymore. What could I say to that? The truth? That I'd rather she be miserable and alive? We'd been living in perplexed terror since the pandemic started, two months that seemed like an eternity, having no clue of the true eternity that stretched before us like a lawn sewn across the event horizon of a black hole. Everyone was already praying for the day when vaccines might be ready, when we would be free of this plague. Melissa's seemed a semi-sane goal in context, but it wasn't. Why don't you conquer your fear of needles instead, I suggested. Way more useful. But she shook her head. First one with the most intense pandemic hobby wins. I didn't realize it was a competition, I said. We were each outfitted with an EpiPen to carry on our persons at all times. Melissa researched bees. Diane purchased hundreds of lavender plants and scheduled their delivery. If my boy was alive, I could have enlisted his help. But instead, I asked my ex-husband, who had a landscaping business, for the use of an old, rusty backhoe loader I knew he rarely used because it had once fallen on one of his employees. Plus one lesson. Trained up. Grinning for the first time in months, Diane climbed into the cockpit, tore up the sod, and dropped the green clumps in the bed of a truck we'd rented. We made seven trips to the dump in two days. By then, Diane was a pro with the knobs. Melissa and I were the ground crew. We measured the dirt yard and chalked out a grid. Kyle would have loved it. He'd played right field in Little League. We'd signed him up because we were afraid he didn't have any friends but he was always more interested in the field than his teammates or the game. In the backhoe, Diane dug holes everywhere X marked the spot. Then the lavender arrived. I was in charge of extracting the plants from their plastic containers without damaging the roots. Diane positioned them in their holes and held them upright while Melissa shoveled the excavated soil around the base. A few local bees were already inspecting our inventory. If you have a death wish, I said as we worked, beads of sweat sliding down my face, dust caking my bare arms and legs, why don't you just go maskless in public? Tapping down the soil with the rounded blade of the shovel, Melissa wore not a tank top and shorts, but a mosquito net over a Chicago Cubs cap, a long sleeve flannel shirt, leather gloves, jeans, and hiking boots. That's exactly my point, she said. I want to live, but I'm not really alive if I'm living in constant fear. Then who is alive? I yanked out a lavender from its pot with too much force, damaging the roots. No one, not me. Under her netting, Melissa gave me her most annoying, compassionate big sister face as Diane piped in. But aren't we hardwired to be afraid? To keep us alive? Isn't that the point of fear? Melissa shook her head. Not like this, not like me. As if you have a monopoly, I said, handing Diane the plant. It's not a competition, said Melissa. Diane took it and positioned it into its hole. But you don't seem afraid of the bees. Yeah, well, Melissa laughed nervously, taking a step back from one that had just entered our area. I'm acting as if I'm brave.
you don't have to make it so hard for yourself, Diane said. There is this thing called the pharmaceutical industry, way easier than beekeeping. Exactly, I said, that, not that it had helped me. No pill can grow black back flesh hacked away from your heart. Melissa shoveled the soil around the plant and tapped it down. I hate side effects and we've already dug up the lawn, she said. Next hole. Within a week, the chalk lines were smeared into the dirt. The backhoe returned to my ex, the lavender planted. The three extra plants that exceeded our plotted holes were stored near the side of the house, but the field made an impressive sight. Row upon meticulously measured row of bushy, silvery green lavender with their long, thin stems tipped with purple flowers stretching up to the sun. Then the beekeeping starter kit Melissa had ordered arrived. Diane and I offered to help with that up, but she insisted on doing everything herself. It's important to befriend your fear, she said, after donning the white beekeeping suit, moving slowly like an astronaut in zero gravity as she positioned the hive box in the backfield, within view of the kitchen window but away from the patio. The starter bees were buzzing all around her. Diane and I were standing at a short distance, supervising, terrified, and the bees will learn not to fear me, and that will keep me safe. The bees don't give a shit who you are, I said. They never will. Seeing her in her bee suit made me unaccountably angry. My hand kept jerking toward the EpiPen in my pocket like a nervous tick. Melissa looked over at me through the dark gaze of her fail. That's where faith comes in, she said, which was stupid because our parents had only been vaguely Unitarian. But Diane was curious. What do you have faith in? I have faith that I don't need to know the outcome of every situation in order to be safe, said Melissa. That makes no sense at all, I was practically yelling at her. You are not safe. None of us are. Then I guess bravery is a bit nonsensical. She was obviously insane. Maybe it was pandemic-induced. Bees were crawling all over her baggy white suit. In my mind, I rehearsed again and again the plunging of the needle into the meat of her thigh through the fabric. I would not hesitate. I would be fearless. I would stab her as hard as I could, maybe even harder than was strictly necessary. But after a week or so, it seemed that maybe she had it right. She accustomed herself to the bees and they to her. She put safety first as she learned how to caretake her would-be assassins, inspecting the hive each day after lunch when most of the bees were out foraging. I visited early in the evenings when she was not on beekeeping duty. Sitting on the patio, I would close my eyes, fill my lungs with the scent of lavender and earth, and fail to relax. If the time was right, I could hear the highway in the sky when all the bees zoomed through the yard, making a beeline to their hive to their queen. One evening, Melissa was near a back corner of the house, away from the hive, digging in some stubborn patch of dirt where she wanted to plant the extra lavenders as ornamentals. She was hacking with a shovel through old roots in the earth. The humidity was oppressive. She wore t-shirts, shorts, and sandals. After seeing the expression on my face where I stood on the patio watching her, she called out, don't worry, the boys are already in bed. That's what she called the drones, her boys. She'd grown self-confident and fearless. You have a fucking death wish, I yelled, then marched inside to help Diane with dinner, 
grabbed a knife and began assaulting the vegetables. Diane and I discussed the pandemic, the numbers, the protests, and our constant bewilderment and grief. Our conversation was punctuated with my chopping and the remote staccato of Melissa's shovel hitting earth, mingled with her frustrated outbursts of, Oh, come on! I refused to look in her direction. Diane poured us lavender-infused lemonade. I set the patio table. The glasses began sweating immediately. I had just gone back inside to bring out the salad when I heard the scream. Diane yelled out, Melissa! with that singular tone of voice that embodies one's deepest fear, to lose the one human that matters most to you on this earth. Pulling my EpiPen from my pocket, I sprinted out the door, but it wasn't a bee sting. The dirt near her was nearly muddy with blood. Bright red, thick, smeared all over her left foot. She was sitting on the ground, holding her left leg up in the air. It was bleeding all down her shin, over her knee, dripping on her clothes. The shovel was beside her, the blade red, dirt clumps stuck to it. The air smelled weirdly metallic and sweet. Look, she said, half groaning, half screaming. I think I lost my toes. Diane dropped to her hands and knees and started searching like a dog, hunting for a bone. I whipped off my shirt and tied it around her foot, sandal and all. The rubber sole was partially broken floppy. When was your last tetanus shot? I held the shirt bundle against my thigh as it turned wet and red. Her tan face was ashen under the streaks of dust and sweat. I hate needles, she groaned. Found them, said Diane, holding up the dirty clump of bloody flesh in one hand. Outside the hospital, a man met us looking like an astronaut in his face shield and protective gear. I imagined COVID germs swarming all over him like bees. He told us to keep the car windows rolled up, put on your masks, yelled questions through the glass. Diane yelled back, held up the clump of flesh. He ran back inside, returned a minute later with a wheelchair, helped Melissa out from the back seat. Go home, he said, rolling her toward the emergency room doors. It was like depositing her at the morgue. I shouted, she needs a tetanus shot. She turned her head to look at us over her shoulder, the whites of her eyes above her black mask. Then she was gone. The last time I'd visited the emergency room had been three years ago with my husband and Ryan. The baseball had made a beeline for his neck. He was just a kid, distracted by something, maybe a bee on a dandelion in the backfield. He never saw it coming. None of us did. Diane and I drove home in silence. Without my asking, without her offering, I crashed on their couch but hardly slept. I kept seeing the whites of Melissa's eyes. I tried praying to a Unitarian God type thing, which wasn't nearly as comforting as I imagined the other more definitive brands were. But that night, I called upon the assistance of this non-denominational energy that surely didn't hear us, let alone act on our behalf. I prayed for Melissa and for the nurses and the doctors and for everyone else in that hospital and everyone in every hospital and everyone who couldn't get to a hospital and everyone who had ever lost someone. I prayed for everyone on the planet. No one was safe, ever. The next morning, I woke up 
hearing Diane opening and closing cabinets in the kitchen. Despite my prayers, I had not spent the night trusting that Melissa would leave the hospital whole and healthy with her amputated toes miraculously reattached. No. My head had been filled with fantasy phone calls from doctors telling us she died from blood loss. She died from a staph infection. She died of tetanus. She died of COVID. She died over and over in my mind. I'd planned 10 funerals. I'd written her eulogy. I'd become outraged at the exorbitant rate for obituaries. I'd been railing against some imaginary newspaper employee about how immoral it was to take advantage of the pandemic to jack up their per-word rates when I smelled the coffee. We were on our second cups, waiting. No news is good news, right? said Diane. I didn't respond. I was still wearing yesterday's blood-smeared shorts and bra. Out in the backfield, the lavenders stretched out in neat rows. Bees lifted and landed from flower to flower. Some distant part of my mind registered that it was lovely, but I felt only cold. Those bees don't know how lucky they are, Diane said, cupping her hands around her mug as if it wasn't already 78 degrees, but winter, her hands frostbitten. Her shoulders were hunched forward as if she were trying to protect something fragile and damaged inside her chest that had a slim chance of survival if only she were very, very careful. I stared outside. Privileged as fuck pandemic bees, I said. We've been afraid of the whole thing, the wrong thing this whole time, said Diane. I took a deep breath and let it go. Story of my life. Such a waste of time, she said. Then her phone rang. Melissa wasn't dead. She was ready to go home. After the great rush of relief that made my skeleton feel strangely loose and jangly, we grabbed two masks and beelined to our queen. But my gratitude for one answered prayer was quickly forgotten, replaced by a new fear. Please, I prayed, let her not have the plague. Melissa came home with her gray, wrinkled toes in a plastic jar filled with some preserving fluid. She had crutches. It would take time to regain her balance. Two and a half toes go completely unappreciated, she said. It's only when something's gone that you realize how grateful you should have been all along. No shit. A few days passed. Diane changed her bandages and watched her foot for signs of infection. I took her temperature and watched for signs of COVID. I wore a mask and left the room whenever she happened to cough, returning with tea sweetened with honey I bought at the farmer's market. Please, I prayed, let it be allergies. Two weeks after the accident, when she could whiz around on crutches and hobble about without them, when she was clear of tetanus and COVID, when all my fulfilled prayers had been forgotten, she conducted a ceremony in the backyard. It was late afternoon, the light slanting through the tips of the lavender, casting long summer shadows toward the house. She wore her beekeeping suit as if it were ritual garb. Her boys were making a beeline to their hive. They stood around the same hole in the ground where she tacked away at the roots. It was difficult to see where her blood had spilled. The earth has a wide, open throat. It had already swallowed her sacrifice. Her weight primarily on her right leg 
In one hand, she held a bunch of lavender stems bound together with twine. In the other, her dearly departed. We gather here today to reunite my flesh with the earth, she said. My toes will feed the flowers. The flowers will feed the bees. The bees will feed me and my family. And somehow, someday, my toes will grow back somewhere inside of me, inside of us. Nothing is ever truly lost, only transformed. One bee had landed on her hat and was crawling across her veil, two inches from her nose. Had she named them too? Was this one Ryan? She lowered herself to her knees and placed the mottled toes in the shallow grave. Broken roots reached out to them like welcoming bones. She laid her bouquet over them, then nodded to Diane, who set the last three lavenders in the hole. Hot tears slid down my face as I shoveled in dirt. The the burial completed. Clinging to Diane for support, Melissa rose to her feet. Brown earth speckled the knees of her white beekeeping suit. Blessed be, she said to end the ritual, then looked up and saw my face through her veil. I never knew you were so attached to my toes. My throat swelled shut. I could barely breathe. I can't bear to live without them, I whispered. I'm not brave like you. She stretched out a hand and I moved to her side. It's not a competition, she said, placing her hand around my waist. We stood there, all three, leaning each, leaning into each other for support. Though with all that had been lost, maybe we were two and a half. And this concludes episode two of our special event celebrating the release of our 17th issue of Deep Overstock Beekeeping. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Join us again next week. And don't forget to submit to Old Favorites. It's our next issue. It's our most anticipated issue. It's issue 18, where all our past 17 genres are up for grabs. That's right. Beekeeping, space exploration, dreams, and future. Visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidance.